you have your copies of God's Word, you can turn to Acts chapter 4, and we are going to be uh, working our way uh, pretty much through the rest of the chapter, although we'll be focusing in on verses 13 through 22. And it's hard to find a book of the Bible while talking, so hang on. Found it. All right. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, says this. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed, they being the Sanhedrin. And began to recognize that, the, that Peter and John had been spending a great deal of time with Jesus as ones who had spent a great a time amount with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer behind closed doors with one another and say, what in the world are we going to do with these men? For the fact that there is a noteworthy, unmistakable, undeniable miracle has taken place through them. It is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that they will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in the name of Jesus. And when they had summoned Peter and John and the lame man back, They commanded them not to speak or teach in any way, shape, or form in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. For we will not and we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And then when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle had healed and had been performed. Let's just pick up verse 23 just for fun. When they had been released, Peter and John, they went to their own companions, likely the 120 all right, and reported all that the Sanhedrin and the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And with that, let's ask God's blessing. We'll walk through this together. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us. Father, I pray that I would teach your word uh, lovingly, boldly, clearly, and accurately. Not as one who has arrived, but as one who is in desperate need of its truth himself. I pray that your son's name would be exalted. And that is it. Exalted in the way that we live. Exalted in how we share him. And exalted when people come to know him. Father, we exalt your your son's name tonight when we baptize people. And unidentify with this world and identify with you. We exalt your name when we break the bread at communion. And remember your body and blood. Father, I pray that you would give me clear thoughts. I openly confess 
my sin in front of my church family. And I ask that you cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Thank you that you have forgiven me. Thank you for salvation. And so, Father, I pray these things and I ask them in your Son's precious name. And if you're awake this morning, say amen. Amen. I think the best way that we can fully appreciate what is going on here, what we are about to study, is to place ourselves in the dusty, warm, worn-out, tired sandals and bodies of Peter and John as they rose from a containment center. They, they slept on the hard rock floor. They, they wake up. The, the night has gone by and they are waiting for their hearing, their court date with the Sanhedrin. And what was their crime? What was their crime? They had healed a lame man and had proclaimed that Jesus saves and who has resurrected from the dead. Which brings us to this week's study. We understand that this, if we remember last week's studies, that to the Sadducees this was a great threat to their way of life. It would have threatened the Sadducees doctrinally and that they don't believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. It would have threatened the Sadducees politically as they aligned themselves with Rome because they were wealthy landowners and they wanted to keep their occupying force happy. And it would have contradicted or affected them financially as they want to maintain their wealth. The things that Peter and John, this dynamic duel, has seen together would really blow our minds. They stand before the Sanhedrin, which, which is the, the supreme court of Israel. It is the supreme court of Israel, who, by the way, not only had religious authority over the nation of Israel, but in many ways had civil authority over them as well. For whatever the Sanhedrin decided, and it would have looked like this, whatever they decided in this room was not only obeyed in the temple, but it went into effect within the city of Jerusalem and really the Jewish community as a whole. And they had, by the way, the Sanhedrin, these 71 members of the Sanhedrin that that was compromised of Pharisees and elders and, and Sadducees, they also had political clout over Pilate. And this is what it would have looked like. So there they stand in the center. In fact, verse 7 of chapter, I believe it's chapter 4, tells us that they, that Peter and John were placed in the center of the Sanhedrin there. And we see that with those two blue figures there. They were placed in the center. Seventy-one members consisting of Pharisees and elders and Sadducees created a kind of a a crescent half-circle moon around these two men with the high priest located in an exalted chair right there in the center of that horseshoe in a place that was called the Hall of the Hue Stones. Peter had just, if you remember figuratively last week, thrown a flaming spear of truth at the Sanhedrin and said, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, who who forgives and saves, has done this miracle. 
The Sadducees had been warned about Jesus and and how He was raised from the dead and that salvation is in no other name but Jesus Christ. And it was with all of this going on, early in the morning, the the council has has convened. They're, They're placed in the center, right here on the side of the courtyard, in a place called the the chamber of the hewn stone with all of that being said we're going to dump it into the context of of this passage right here and it says this now as they observed the confidence of peter and john in the center of them in the midst of them they understand that they were uneducated and untrained men they had not been to the rabbinic schools if you will and they were amazed and recognized that they had been with jesus all that people would recognize that we have spent time with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer behind closed doors, saying to one another, what are we going to do with these people? It's a noteworthy miracle. Everyone who lives in Jerusalem knows it. There's no way we can deny it. It is full. It is miraculous. It is instant. This man did not have to go through PT, any physical therapy whatsoever. But so that this, 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 this new thing called Christianity won't spread any further among the people, let's warn them not to speak any longer in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I want to start off with a big picture observation here, all right, that really contains a lot of irony right off the bat. There is huge irony in this moment. Peter and John, who have, by the way, very little rabbinic education, have no civil authority and no power. And they are standing in the middle of 71 men who have all of the authority, all of the power, even that over the hand of Pilate. And not only do they have all this power, but they have the ability to punish these men. The contrast could not be greater. Yet here's where the irony falls in. The Sanhedrin had all the authority, yet they're afraid to use it because of public opinion. Whereas Peter and John have absolutely no authority and they could care less what public opinion is. Wouldn't that be a wonderful trapping in the church where we were more concerned with the glory of God than we were the approval of this world? Amen? Can you imagine how powerful the church would be if God was our audience, not the approval of a political party? Now. They have no authority and no fear. Now, with that being said, here's a question. All right? Let me find myself in my notes. Why is the Sanhedrin afraid of public opinion? Because Peter and John are not alone. There is one more man in the middle of that crescent moon here. All right? You can see him leaping like a deer. A man who had been healed from birth was standing with them in the middle of that crescent moon. I don't know this for a fact, but my imagination gets the better of me here. Have you ever seen someone so happy? Have you ever seen... (laughs) Newlyweds, all right? They're disgusting, are they not? Or newly engaged. I don't even know why we do premarital counseling. They hear nothing. (laughs) Nothing. We're like, these are the trappings of marriage. Not us. We're in love. Oh, okay. Off subject. Let's move forward, all right? I've only read that in journals and magazines. 
Who's laughing so hard today? Let's tone it down a little bit, all right? It's getting distracting. Have you ever seen anyone so happy that they don't care what's going on around them? I can't help but seeing this healed man constantly checking out his... If you were lame from birth and you couldn't walk and you're in your 40s and you are instantly healed, instantly healed, leaping like a deer, which is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 35, that salvation is upon us. If you were healed from birth and you're leaping like a deer, talk to me. What are you doing? What are you looking at? What you, what's, what's important to you? Talk to me. Everything. You're looking at everything. Okay. In a, new, a whole new vantage point, right? Because prior to this, this was his vantage point. All right? Now he gets to see people and eye to eye. Well, how else are you acting? Talk to me. Making sure they still work. Yeah, making sure this isn't a temporary healing, right? You know, okay. If I were him, I'd be checking out my calves, you know, looking at the Sanhedrin. Huh? Can you believe this? He's in the middle of all of this. Have you ever seen a little kid not realizing in a, that they're in an important moment and they're just doing their own thing? That's how I envision this man leaping like a deer. Do you think he cares what the Sanhedrin has to say after being healed all these, t- all these years? What would you do if you were healed from being lame since birth? The Sanhedrin, by the way, all know this man well. If not by face, but by name. This lame man was either known or was familiar with everyone in that room of 71. He had been parked outside the temple wall begging for decades. Chapter 4 verse 22 tells us that he was well into his 40s when he was, when he was healed. Everyone knew this man well. In fact, most of Jerusalem knew this man well. The city of Jerusalem proper during this time would have been roughly anywhere between 40, 50 to 75,000 people, depending on the time of the year. Most of Jerusalem was Jewish. I know it's going to blow our minds, all right? This is like Holland, all right? Most of Jerusalem is Jewish. This man has been begging in Jerusalem at the front primary gate of the temple. In fact, it says in, in, in the Word of God, whom they set down every day, every day for decades, at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. Acts chapter 3, verse 2, which, by the way, is the front primary gate made out of bronze. That's why it's called Beautiful. And he did this for decades, not to mention, if you remember a few weeks ago, in the Apocrypha, in Tobit chapter 4, verse 10, you could get in the good graces of God by giving charity to the lame and the beggars. All this to say this, there is a giant problem here. This is why they're afraid. The Sanhedrin is afraid to exercise some of their authority. The man who is healed in front of them is known by everyone in Jerusalem. Hence the words, it is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. And if we remember the chronological context of this passage, it's only been hours since this man has been healed. Three o'clock in the afternoon, they're going into the temple. The busiest time of the year, they heal the man, they give a message. They're arrested, they're put into a jail cell, they wake up. They're in the, the hall of hewn stone, standing in front of 71. Lit- and if, I don't know if they slept at all, so we're looking at maybe 10 hours here. And all of Jerusalem is aware of what is going on. Time travels, time travels fast. What travels fast? Word travels fast. Time does too. Can I get a witness on that? It's like I blink my eyes and I'm another year old. Moving forward. 
They had nothing to say in reply. What do you say when you have no explanation? In fact, it says here, they cannot deny it. Everyone in Jerusalem knows this man. Look at him. He's 40-some years old, and he's leaping like a deer. It is here that we see just how powerful Peter's object lesson is when he healed this man before he gave his sermon in the temple, and 2,000 people came to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So what do we do? What would you do if you were the authority and you have put, been put between a rock and a hard place? 71 men want to shut this down, but you got a leaping deer in front of you. Well, the same thing we as parents do when we find ourselves with our children between a rock and a hard place. Here's a question. Have you ever confronted your children? Or maybe you confronted your parents, but let's stick with the first one. You've confronted your children with something you don't like, and their response is so good, it is so true, it is so piercing, it is so base fact that it puts you as a parent as a loss. Has anyone ever been there before? Would it, okay. What are some things you say to your children when they make a point that is better than yours? What are some things you say to your children? Talk to me. (laughs) That sounds like you've heard that, my friend. Because I said so. Anyone else? What's that? I can't understand that. Bravo. Yeah, that has never escaped my lips, all right? No, a few times. My son Titus, who's very witty, I can't even argue with the kid half the time. So I send him to his room, which is no punishment whatsoever because he likes to live there. All right. Anyone else? What are some things we say to our kids? What's that? You're right. But I think our, for me growing up, the go-to one is the one that we heard first. And that is because I said so. Go to your room which really is code for let your mom and I discuss and try and figure out how we can come out of this without any egg in our face. That's what's going on here. How do we get out of this? We can't deny it. Look at what they did here. They had ordered them to leave the council, go to your room, get out of here, and let us confer with one another. And we have already worked through what they have discussed. So here's what's going on. They actually do what parents do with their children when, when their children have intellectual and practical high ground. What do parents say? Because I said so. Look at what the Sanhedrin says. Even though we cannot deny it. This speaks to the hardness of man's heart. Even though their argument is airtight. Even though we have no ground. Deuteronomy, I believe, 19. No ground to keep them says this, so that it will not spread any further among the people, let's warn them not to speak any longer to anyone else in this name, which is the name Jesus of Nazareth. This is a giant stop because we said so or else. Now, I want to stop here. There is a hidden detail in this text that is equally true that's not written. And I love, that's why I love the context here. Peter and John and this lame man jumping up and down have been warned and and, and soon will be set free. But you have to stop talking. But seeds of the gospel are being planted and are falling on the ground in this court. So how do we know this? 
Well, it's found to remember in the historical context of Dr. Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. Really, the book of Acts is really Luke chapter 2. So every, uh, Luke, book, Luke 2, all right? So every time I say Luke instead of Acts, I'm actually biblically more sound than those who are correcting me, all right? This is Luke book 2, what Acts is. And, and, and it is understanding that Dr. Luke, the author, and you can see it there, all right, the author is writing a book of Acts, and he, and, he, and he says, all that I write down is from firsthand eyewitness accounts. In fact, Luke chapter 1, verse 2 says, by those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I recorded these letters. So here's the question. If Peter and John and this lame man have been dismissed and the Sanhedrin is in closed council, how do we know what they discussed? How do we know what they're talking about in a closed session? The only way for us to know what was said behind those closed doors is if someone behind those closed doors told Dr. Luke in an interview who wrote it down in the book. If you're following what I'm saying here, say amen. Okay, you're with me. Good. I want you to take your imagination and I want you to see those 71 people in the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel. Who in this room do we know is there? Who in this room told Dr. Luke what was going on here? Well, we know at least that Nicodemus is in this room. Nicodemus in this room, who is a sympathizer to Jesus. We don't have any biblical evidence that he actually came to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but we know he's interested in Jesus. We know he's a sympathizer with Jesus. We also know that Joseph of Arimathea is in this room as well, or could likely be in this room. He is the one who who gave Jesus his his brand new tomb after he was crucified. And they buried him. Both of these people were members of the Sanhedrin. But there is one more possibility here. Do you see him? Look around in the room. Look around in the room in that that early first century. One theologian named Wetherington suggests this. Saul, soon to be the Apostle Paul may have been in that room as well. Acts chapter 22, 4 through 5. Acts chapter 26, 9 through 10. If, if he's not on the council, he certainly, it's not pictured here, there would have been benches right here in the lower area where people who were in training to be in the Sanhedrin, the bench, if you will, it's where we get that political term as well, they don't have a very deep bench. He, Paul, Saul would have been at least on that bench listening in at what is going on. If this is true, seeds of the gospel are falling on the ground in front of the Apostle Paul's heart who will soon write 13 books of the New Testament. But with all this being said, the Sanhedrin are living their worst nightmare. They had executed Jesus to stop this message about being the Messiah. And now he has resurrected. By the way, you notice their argument isn't, hey, isn't he still dead? There's no argument. They don't even, they don't even touch that subject because it's only been, I don't know, eight weeks since the resurrection of Jesus Christ and they cannot deny it. Maybe it's why thousands upon thousands upon thousands will unidentify with this culture because they see historically that Jesus rose from the dead. 
They're living their worst nightmare here. They had executed Jesus to stop talking about him being the Messiah. And now he is resurrected and his followers are going everywhere, repeating the very claims they killed Jesus for. And it's working. The lame man is bouncing up and down. Thousands upon thousands are being baptized. The message could not be stopped. So so they get together and they do what parents do. They agree that they they will let them go. But they're going to give them a stern warning. How many here have ever gotten stern warnings from your parents and you know it ain't going to bother you one bit? Anyone at all? Not me. I honored my father and mother. No. (laughs) They give them a stern warning to stop teaching in the name of Jesus. If for no other reason, church, say it here, for no other reasons, because we said so. And with that... Let's dump that into verses 18 through 22. Close session is over. They summoned them back. They commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God, listen to you rather than God, you make your own judgment. We are not going to stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Then when they had threatened them any further, they let them go, finding no basis in which to punish them. It was undeniable on the account of the people being fearful of them and popular opinion because all of them, at least 2,000, have just recently gotten saved and are going to be baptized soon, are glorifying God for what had happened. For a man from whom the miracle of healing had been performed had been at least 40-some years old since birth. They commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Verse 17 tells us why. So that it wouldn't spread anymore among the people. Here it is. Stop proselytizing. Stop evangelizing. Stop sharing your faith. Aren't you glad that kind of demand on Christianity is dead? Amen? Can I use a two-letter word that some people find offensive? Shut what? Up! Stop proselytizing. Stop evangelizing. I want you to notice what what they are demanding here. It's not a small demand. Because Jesus commanded these men to do the exact opposite, did he not? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, he said, therefore, I'm going to tell you something. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And are, Are the apostles not doing this? They're the Jesus Christ whom you crucified. Repentance, salvation, baptism, 3,000, 2,000, 5,000 men only, not including the women. The Sanhedrin is fearful. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what the apostles are doing. Literally 5,000 people have not completely dried off from being baptized. Notice what the Sanhedrin orders. Do not speak and do not teach at all in the name of Jesus. What we have here are two commands that explicitly contradict one another. The first command is from the Sanhedrin, the civil authorities and religious and spiritual authorities. The first command, which is stop talking. We also have another command that comes from Jesus, who is God in the flesh. Jesus gave a command, and we've given it a title. It's called the Great What? Commission. Go, tell, teach, 
baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the, and the doctrine that is all around that. Jesus gave the great commission. The Sanhedrin gave the, the great decommission. So what are they to do? This is our civil authority. This is our spiritual authority. Which brings up a, a very important teaching moment. And here it is. Who are we to obey if our civil and federal authorities demand the opposite of what is explicitly taught by God? Especially in lieu of Romans chapter 13. Paul, by the way, member of the Sanhedrin, watching all this, he's about to watch the men disobey civil authorities. Yet Paul writes in Romans which, by the way, would have been not during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, but during the reign of Nero. How many here know the history of Nero? Anyone at all? Compassionate conservative Nero. Nero lit his gardens with impaled believers to light them up at night. That's going to make Congress seem a little passive, does it not? Paul says this. Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that do exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists civil authority has opposed the ordinance and command of God. How do we reconcile this? Not to mention Peter himself, who is standing in the middle of Sanhedrin right now, who is about to disobey the Sanhedrin right now, who represents the civil authorities right now, Peter will later write this. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Let me ask you a question. Is the Sanhedrin a human institution? Talk to me. Yes. Does the Sanhedrin represent authority? You kind of want Peter to pick a lane, don't you? Have you ever had someone tell you something in one sentence and they are the exact opposite of what they just said? Anyone at all? Submit yourselves to the Sanhedrin. Every human institution, whether it is a king as one in authority or governors that have been elected as sent to him, uh, uh, as sent by him, for such is the will of God. And do not use your spiritual freedom as a covering for your own selfish desires. But remember, you are a bondservant of God. Why would Peter write this, but then disobey the Sanhedrin now? Which, by the way, Jesus summarized this when he said this, pay unto Caesar that which was Caesar, and unto God's that which is God's. Here, the civil and spiritual authority of Israel is asking them to do what is clearly and explicitly against the teaching of Christ. This is why here they can say these words. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you make your own judgment. Now, I want to stop here for a moment because this is fun because I can see us in this. This is the first indication that a little piece of West Michigan is inside the first century Herodian temple in the, in the rock hewn and out of the rock, the Sanhedrin. There is some West Michigan personality here. Do you know what West Michigan personality is? Talk to me. If we don't like something, we communicate it, not by actually talking to the person, but through 
through a, a style of speech. And I'll give you the first word. The first word is passive. What's the next word? Aggressive. How many here have ever witnessed that at all? How many here have ever done it? I have. I know you have, Holly. I've been a victim of it. Now, <laughs> and you of mine, but yours was evil. Mine was meant for good. No. He says, whether it's right to, to listen to you or to God, you be the judge. Now, before we move on to this next famous verse, there is a subtle poke here by Peter. I love the personality of Peter here. All right? In the eye of the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin exists to make sure who is obeyed. Now, before you answer that, the Sanhedrin is not a democracy. It's, it's not an anarchy. Okay? It is, a, it is a what? Talk to me. The, 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 theocracy. I literally had to bring that bread to you, all right? It is a nation ruled by and for God. The Sanhedrin's job is to make sure that who is obeyed? Talk to me. God. Israel's a theocracy. So, so to say whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you make your own judgment. The Sanhedrin could hardly say the words, you should obey us rather than God. I mean, it was absolute poke in the eye here. You can see how just well Jesus, how well Jesus prepared these men. And by the way, there is a promise here. Jesus said, do not worry what you will say when you are pulled in before the authorities, for the Holy Spirit will give you the words to what? Talk to me, church. To say. We can see the fulfillment of the promise here of Jesus. You can see how well they are prepared. At every turn, the Sanhedrin is being embarrassed and God is being glorified. But in this moment, we have a great crossroads, do we not? Of every believer in every culture, in any government of any country they have ever been in. Whether you live in America or you live in Russia or you live in China or you live in a socialist country or a capitalist country. What are we to do when government tells us to do the opposite of what God has clearly said? And it is here. And D.L. Bach, who I really love to read, says this. God's affirmations of the limits of power on human institutions. It is here that we see God's affirmation on the limits of power of any government or human institution. Here's the point. We are to obey the law. We are to obey civil authorities carefully as long as those laws do not conflict with the clear, explicit teaching of the Scriptures. I want to highlight the word clear, explicit teachings. If I could summarize it, thus saith the Lord. Okay? If you and I must do with the Bible some sort of hermeneutical science experiment. You following where I'm going here? If we have to do some hermeneutical science experiment, all right, and, and, and with the Bible so that we can justify why we're not submitting to uh, human institutions regardless of the country in which we live, then with humility to draw from Peter and Paul, we are using our freedom in Christ as a covering of our selfish evilness. Let me give you an example. 
If you have to take or extract a biblical principle from one verse and cross-pollinate it with another verse in its context and then extract the DNA of that principle and apply it to a straw horse argument with your Bunsen burner of interpretive freedom and then evaporate that principle and hold it up in a test tube against the fluorescent light of a hypothetical situation found hundreds of years ago in history and then declare, this is why I must disobey... With humility, we are abusing the Word of God. Amen? But we do it. We do it. And let us remember that these commands are as much for those who live in America as they are for those who live in Russia or Germany or ancient Rome under the oppression of Nero while he lights his gardens at night with living people. The command to obey government is not written to everyone but Americans. Amen, Pastor. Preach it. Got quiet in here fast. We're going to be talking about biblical authority here soon, all right? Which we love to trumpet. You know, hey, they don't want you to do that anymore. Forget biblical authority. That being said, If we are asked to explicitly disobey God, we must obey God rather than man. That is what we have here. Notice their disobedience is not nuanced. They're not asking Peter to put a different pair of shoes on. They're not asking Peter to put a different piece of clothing on. It is not nuanced. They are being asked to stop explicitly exactly what Jesus told them to do. Which, by the way, is is the standard. They say, do not fulfill the Great Commission. Don't obey Jesus. It could not be clearer. It could not be more explicit. There is no hermeneutical science experiment necessary. They are saying blue, and Peter and Jesus said red. It couldn't be more clear. Now, with all this being said, all right, this is their response. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen or heard. Why? Because we have been explicitly commanded to do it. Why couldn't Peter just say, you know what, we'll try to be more careful in the future. Thank you. Because the Great Commission is remarkably clear, which is the standard. Peter and John, I'm, and I'm sure the lame man who's still showing off his cast at the Sanhedrin, all right, and, it, and is, is talking and mouthing words to them, the three of them choose to disobey the Great Decommission. And the, of the Sanhedrin in order to obey Christ's great commission. My friends, when government says, do that which is contrary to the Word of God, I want you to hear this and affirm it if you want. When the government says that we are to do contrary to what explicitly teach, is taught in the Word of God, our response is to obey God. It is to look into the eyes of our civil authorities, and like Martin Luther, stand our ground even at great cost to our own lives and say, here I am, I can do no other, for we have been purchased with a price, and above all else, we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Amen? This is who we are. Regardless of the country we're in. 
And it is here that I could continue and rant and throw out more easy examples to whip us up in some sort of ecclesiastical lather and get bigger amens. But, and then we could all congratulate ourselves on our dedication to the Word of God. But the truth of the matter is, that is not the dedication we struggle with. So rather than throw out more red meat, I want to throw out some mirrors and look at our hearts. So I'm going to give, ask here, I'm going to have permission to challenge our American spirit and shift it to the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to challenge us not with red meat, but with mirrors. And you want to know what? I'm going to challenge myself as well. So I'm going to start with a little disclaimer. I am a socially conservative, civil rights loving, truth be told, right side of the political spectrum. How many here are shocked? (laughs) I am a civil rights loving, right side of the political spectrum, but I pray to God this is not who I am. So what I'm about to say, I need you to hear this, is being said by a conservative, gun-owning, pro-life, small-government constitutionalist. I love my country. I value the Constitution. I would fight for this country. And I honor and respect all that do. But hear me, my family. Our authority above all else is the Word of God. May I make a contemporary American observation from a 2,000-year-old text? The church seems to be most bold about obeying God when government touches our freedoms, when government touches our culture, when government touches our rights. And we seem to be so passive about obeying God over our hearts and our homes and our church. You say, how can we say this? Because the heart of the Sanhedrin is in all of us. Jesus gave the great commission. The Sanhedrin gave the great decommission. Truth of the matter is, haven't we today done essentially the same thing? We have taken the great commission of Jesus and we have made it into nothing less than the great suggestion. Is that any less disobedient? Here's a question. Why are we, a, why are we passionate about obeying God when government steps in. I'm going to let that marinate. Why are we passionate about obeying God when government steps in and completely passive when they do not? Is it because we are motivated by government defiance, which is our roots, not biblical authority? Why do we cry out for biblical authority over the state, but not over our hearts? Now I say that what I'm about to say may make some of you mad at me. But I love you all enough to teach you God's Word, even if it costs me a pound of flesh. And frankly, I need to teach God even if it accuses me while doing so. I do not stand here this morning because I have climbed the summit of Christianity. And what I'm about to say will equally accuse my heart because I have failed here as well. But God's Word is the authority, and that is it. 
May I tell you that during the pandemic last year, one of the most embarrassing things I ever witnessed was how Christians responded to their civil authorities and church leadership. When the government told us not to have church, people showed up outside banging on the doors. We must worship, Hebrews chapter 10. And then when the government stepped aside, those very same people freely forsake the assembly of the house of God. What happened to biblical authority? The command to not forsake the assembly was there before the pandemic. Amen? And it's thereafter. Rather than submitting to church leadership in discernible areas in a way that brought the leadership joy, Hebrews chapter 13, letters of rage, defiance, and blatant outright refusal filled the air. Where was biblical authority? Rather than respecting individual soul liberty in Romans chapter 14, many of us ran to our infallible positions backed by our political party and favorite blogger. Where was the biblical authority? Rather than referring others' interest over our own, Philippians chapter 2, we beat people over the head with our science and our freedoms. Rather than praying for our civil leaders in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we posted profane and evil comments about them. Rather than living at peace with unbelievers in 1 Peter chapter 2, we screamed at the managers of stores. Rather than telling the truth, which is the ninth commandment, we openly coached people on how to bend the truth. Where was our love for biblical authority? I had one person, and this is no lie, and they do not attend here, all right? One person look at me and say, I know my rights! And the next person who tells me this is about my testimony in Jesus Christ should be taken out behind the barn and shot in the head. Who wants to get saved? What happened to biblical authority? Here's a hard question. Church, how many of our civil rights did we fight for in such a way that we disobeyed biblical authority and lost our voice for Christ? And this is coming from someone who has a loaded 9 millimeter in his pocket right now. Just teasing. <laughs> Maybe not. No, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. How many of our civil rights did we fight for in such a way that we threw biblical authority out the window and lost our voice for Christ? Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't exercise our rights. I'm not saying I've signed petitions. What I'm saying is that our civil rights do not hold a greater value than biblical authority. Last year, I get together with pastors' conferences. Oh, that's just a, a, a depressed place the last year and a half. You walk in there, you're like, good Lord, this is the light of the earth? All right? If a pastor in our circles got a nickel every time he heard the phrase, we must stand up for our rights. Got a nickel for every time he heard that. And a nickel was taken away. Are you following me here? If a nickel was taken away every time he heard, we must stand for the testimony of the Lord. Every pastor in our circle would be millionaires. And 
we would be ministering on the white powdered beaches of St. Thomas. Now you may say, Pastor, I think you're on a rabbit trail. No. I bring this up to make a very potent point. We cannot claim biblical authority over the government in one hand and at the same time reject biblical authority over our hearts in the other. My friends, biblical authority starts here. Biblical authority does not start here. American Christian, hear this today. This is not the goal. I want to tell you, this is the goal. And with that, Peter and John and the leaping beggar showing off his calves are released. Scripture says they went out to their church and they reported all of what the chief priests and elders said to them. And when they prayed and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, look what they did. They says this, they began to speak the word of God more boldly. <laughs> and with all this going on, seeds of the gospel slowly roll to the feet of what we will know as the future Apostle Paul. And those seeds will need some serious water. But they will take root. Oh, to know His Word. Tonight, we baptize. And while the water still drains out of the robes, we will immediately transition into communion. Because what makes a church a church? The scriptures, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and the prayers. I invite you to come back tonight. Until then, where is God's authority in your life? Stop trying to apply it to the American flag start applying it here. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it not just steps on our toes, it crushes them sometimes. But Father, may, our, may, may we be crushed so that you can build us back up in your image. Thank you for these people. Bless them, Father. May we be in love with your word because we're in love with you. And I pray this in your son's precious name. I love you guys. You are dismissed.